How will the Protecting the Right to Organize Act impact independent contractors and members of the gig economy like Uber drivers? How will it change the lives of folks paying their bills, delivering meals for DoorDash? And what are businesses who rely on independent contractors supposed to do if they're forced to hire people they can't afford to hire? I'm Dwayne Lester, and in this Insight to Action, we talk with Tom Bingham, a member of the Stand Together community who also works in the gig economy, about his experience and what worries him most about the PRO Act. Here we go. Tom, you've been working in the, uh, what do they call it, the gig economy? Is that what the kids are calling it these days? The gig economy, the the side gigs, the side money, the four-hour work week, there's a lot of terms for it. Tell me about your experience working in the, uh, the gig economy. Sure. So this actually, it kind of reminds me of when I was thinking of trying to find my first job when I was in college. It was a I just remember um, right out of high school, a lot of things were starting to happen, such as the housing crisis in Southern California. It was tough to find a job. The jobs I found were very inflexible with my college schedule. And I remember just, I've always been trying to like find like that new niche, that find kind of like my place in the world. And, you know, while I was in college, I read the four hour work week, as we mentioned before, Uh, but I'm like, how does that really work? And I remember as I was just getting out of college, there was a lot of these weird ideas kind of floating around California. I remember when Uber was just new, I'm like, this is a cool idea. You could be your own boss. I'm like, does it sound realistic though? So I gave it a try. Quickly, I, you know, the process is pretty reasonable. And I started uh, making a pretty good amount of money. But the appeal to me really was the ability to kind of control my hours, be my own boss, but really be able to have the ability to take risks in my career where I don't have to be stuck at a job that maybe I'm not a fan of or didn't want to do. I knew that I can have leverage in a negotiation for a career I want because I could be like, you know what, I I don't want to do this job or I'm not comfortable with it. I can do all sorts of side gigs. And this interest in uh, Uber led to a lot of other apps this was just kind of one that got a lot of people's attention, which eventually led to me getting involved with things like Uber, Lyft, uh, Fiverr, I mean, TaskRabbit. There's all sorts of cool side gigs where over the years, uh, the focus for me has shifted a little. So before it was being able to find the job I wanted and being having a little bit more leverage in a negotiation with an employer. Now it's being able to travel, pay for things. There's a number of unexpected bills I had about two years ago that were medical related. Normally spending a, having to spend a few extra thousand dollars would have been economically devastating. But now I was just able to do some side gigs, pay the bills, move on with my life. And currently helping my parents actually get out of California and remodel part of their house. And I was able to use some of the side gigs again, be like, hey guys, I'll help you out now, you pay me back. And it wasn't really that much of a financial burden. And that's just something I don't think I would have been able to do without the gig economy. Just it, you know, for the last five plus years, it's opened up so many opportunities. If I'm hearing you right, you're telling me that the free market and this gig economy is allowing you to find the best best path forward for you and to allow you to decide how you find fulfillment in your work. Yeah. And it goes even further than that. I mean, it's even more important now because 
I mean, during the pandemic, a lot of my friends were asking one simple question. What happens if I'm, what happens to my job if it disappears or if I'm laid off? That's something I don't have to worry about as much because it's like, cool, like I may have other stuff, you know, that I can do to make money, to create, you know, engage in mutual benefit. Be like, hey, there's all these jobs I've taken a pass on that I can easily do just to ride out the next opportunity that comes up. So it, it gives me the ability to be like, hey, I don't have to depend on people. I have... I can do what I want. I can live where I want. Now I'm not even tied to a region. There's nothing stopping me from living in Virginia, which is where I currently live. Love love being in the state. But nothing stopped me from going back to, let's say, Texas. But with that being said, this is also partly why I'm so passionate about the political policy process and you know why all these concerns come up. Because even though it opens up a lot of opportunities, there's also a lot of barriers that have been threatening the entire gig economy for the last few years. Tell me about those. What are you seeing? Well, I mean, it goes right back. The first one that comes to mind is going back to my home state of California, where I was born and raised. The thing I'm thinking of is AB5. Uh, right off the bat, it pretty much, once that passed, which pretty much created an ABC test to, from what they, what a lot of politicians said was, independent contractors are being unfairly treated. And if you actually look at the LA Times and Vox and a lot of these news sources when AB5 was being proposed, uh, the things they were saying really bothered me to my core. They were saying that independent contractors were abused. They compared it to other types of almost slave labor. And I'm like, one, I was baffled by that because they're not just attacking people that I know that are in this gig economy, but they're attacking me personally. And I don't think they understand some of the terms they're using because during, you know, when there's a high demand, let's say for Lyft, I might be making, you know, 30, 40 plus dollars an hour. Uh, so I'm making quite a bit more money than I would in some other jobs. But they're telling me that not only is what I'm doing wrong, but it needs to be controlled and it needs to be restricted. And maybe I have to be forced to join a union if I do want to. And I need to be a full time employee, which defeats the whole purpose of me being an independent contractor is to get away from that flexibility. But this isn't like a new thing. AB5 is just something that is super destructive, especially since there are now federal threats where, you know, people thought California's destructive AB5, which outlawed everything from the Santa Claus that's at your mall, all the way down to Uber, Lyft drivers, a lot of life-saving services that people don't think about. Like Instacart sounds kind of silly to say, but there are people that you know, in high risk categories, where if they were to get, for example, the COVID virus, they would possibly, you know, suffer severe medical complications, if not death. There's a lot of opportunities that came up where people now depended on it. And a lot of those restrictions for AB5 came up. Now there's some, there's a silver lining there. Uh, there was a voter approved amendment where they were able to kind of carve out exemptions. I think we talked, actually, you talked about this a little bit on your last podcast, where certain industries with money and influence were able to carve out exemptions, but not every industry has that advantage. Not every industry has a lobbyist that they can go run to or a representative. So there's a lot of industries that were thrown under the bus. And it also goes back to California where Vox News reporters, the same reporters that advocated for, you know, getting rid of independent contractors ended up losing their jobs. Because they were like, you know what, this is going to be great. But most of them were freelance reporters. And all the freelance reporters that advocated for it were all let go because it'd be illegal under AB5. So, I mean, even something that we value, such as the media and freedom of the press, was directly attacked. And there's goes back to something I've always talked about. A lot of times the 
unintended consequences of a bad policy. It re- really goes back to also what Frederick Hayek called the fatal conceit, because we see these these master planners, these central planners, and they have, honestly, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. I want to believe that they had the best of intentions. Let's let's assume that the people writing these laws honestly believe that Thomas Bingham is being abused, that he's being taken advantage of, that the people who are running this businesses, that they are leveraging what they have to get the most out of you and give you the least amount that they can. And they honestly believe that you would be better off if you were an employee and you had all those benefits that came with full-time employment. Let's assume that was their intent. What they fail to see is past the end of their own good intentions. In their mind, it is once this passes, everything will be solved. And as we've said before, there are no no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And there is a failure in that fatal conceit to see all the unintended consequences that, believe it or not, individuals may respond differently based on their own specific circumstances. And it might be applied in ways that they never intended For example, Kira Davis in her podcast talking about AB5 and the PRO Act described a community theater that serviced a a community that was specifically aimed at helping the children and they they all had independent contractors for their actors and they couldn't hire all of those actors. So the community theater has to close. Now, who did that really help? It helped no one. And so there are what you see all these unintended consequences. Now we've seen the destruction of AB5 in California, and now we're looking at the PRO Act. You seem to believe that this will have similar consequences across the country. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, let's go back to the example of Uber and Lyft. Most people, if that's applied across the country, let's say they apply it to DC, Maryland, Virginia, because uh, that's where I live right now, just in Arlington. So there's a high demand for it. I mean, a lot of people were like, well, there's public Metro. I'm like, that's not always an option in the past. It was not always working. Now it's a dangerous COVID trap as some would call it here. Cause maybe being in a tunnel crammed with a bunch of people is not exactly an appealing feature right now. Uh, but most people don't realize that most of the people that depend on a lot of these rideshare services might not have access to public transit. They might be older people, people with disabilities, uh, or other complications. And what's unique about a lot of the whole gig economy that's popped up is if you go back 10, 15 years ago in the D.C. area, there were parts that are extremely unsafe, that taxi cabs wouldn't go, police departments wouldn't really go, normal people wouldn't go unless they were trying to buy something illegal. But what's happened with the gig economy is people like me, incentivized to engage in mutual benefit and make money, will drive through a snowstorm, pick people up and let's say, Anacostia in the middle of the night just to, to get that extra bonus. And that's led to all sorts of opportunities where people may have not had access to certain job markets in D.C. or Virginia now can get all, all get all over the place for a reasonable price. And I think that's one of the first things that we'll see for unintended consequences, people that don't have access to personal vehicles or have reliable transportation that's safe, whether it's from maintenance issues or COVID, they're going to be the first to take the impact. They're going to feel the impact of this policy. Uh, and that is something that I don't think people fully thought through. And then if you think about other ego, even bigger, go into like a lot of the task rabbit gigs. A lot of people may just need help getting around the house, fixing things or making their house a little safe 
by having uh, their show their their snow being uh, shoveled. That will be illegal under if uh, the PRO Act is passed. Wow. And again, you go back to the to the central planning, the idea that this would would benefit, and it seems like it would have a lot of negative negative impacts on not only those working in the gig economy, not only the businesses, but the, the customers or the consumers itself. And, you know, when you were talking, I thought, I can't remember the last time uh, I took an Uber and it caught on fire. Or you know, the last time I, I called a, a lift and there weren't any lifts available because they had all broken down. And what it does is it allows different competition, allows different opportunities. And as with competition, what it does is it provides the highest quality service at the lowest possible price. And that is really mutually beneficial to everyone. Now, something you said earlier, I kind of want to go back to. You said that when AB5 was being put out there, and we can talk about this in, from the, the PRO Act perspective also, you felt like that was a like a personal attack on you. And I'm curious why you felt that way specifically. Well, so there's a few things to think about. So the first is... They're saying that I'm being abused. I can't decide for myself. So they're already saying that I'm in the wrong. I'm being attacked. I'm a victim. And then two, because I'm speaking out against it, they're saying, oh, well, you must be greedy then. Because you start to see the cab, the debate between cabs versus Uber and Lyft. And they're like, well, this, one of the narratives that they would say, and I remember being online talking about this. Some people were like, well, you're taking jobs away from people that really need it. I'm like, how, how, please explain that more. And they're just saying like, well, you don't deserve it. So I think it's really coming down to who decides what they can do. And what they're saying to me is I can't determine my own future. I can't determine my work schedule. And it's really taken away my ability to that I've been passionate about for the last few years. I mean, what happens down the line, they take all of that away and I need to move. Let's say if I had to move back home to help family in California or move out of the Virginia area, what opportunities are going to be available? And I might actually lead to a decline in not just income, but like freedom or even services or me just trying to get from the airport home safely or trying to get out of a you know, part of DC home. Will I even have that option? Because people were telling me how cabs used to work in DC years ago. And most of the time they wouldn't even drive you out of the district. Sometimes you had to drive up to the district, uh, to the DC border, and then they would drop you off there. And there's all sorts of horrible stories where, you know, the Uber services just just didn't cut it. I mean, even now, the few Uber, uh, the few cabs I see, uh, they'll have like Crown Vicks, for example, like old 90s gas guzzling cars. But if you get into Uber, Lyft, Via, any other competitors you can think of, I'm getting in sometimes Teslas, brand new cars. I feel pretty safe in them. Uh, where if I was in a cab, I'm like, hey, was this car going to make it home? And I'm just trying to get five miles. It also makes it reminds me of, of, of a news story I saw years ago when California was trying to. It might not have been the state, it might have just been a certain town in California that was essentially banning Airbnb. And the fact of the matter is, the people who were in this news story that I was watching, they were paying their bills and they were making their house payments and they were, they were living based on the income they could get from Airbnb. And when you, when you remove that, you are lowering people's standards of living. I really want to emphasize something that you said earlier. You were helping your parents move to a better life through doing this. And AB5 and the PRO Act 
were that put in place, that would make that impossible. You would not be able to do that. You weren't, however, being forced to do that. It wasn't, and, and I think that's really what we need to emphasize. There is no coercion in the gig economy. It doesn't exist. Could you explain to me how this, yeah. how the whole process works? I mean, no one showed up at your door, Tom, and said, oh, by the way, today you're driving for Uber, did they? This is something you volunteered for. Yeah, this is just something I thought was an awesome idea. And to be honest, let's say one day, every once in a while, there's some, like any company I may have a dispute with, I could pick up my phone right now, hit a button, delete the app. And that's what's unique about a lot of these apps that use the gig economy. They may be, they may have a ton of money, but in some cases, some of these companies are operating and pretty much losing money on purpose just to stay relevant in the game because they know if their credibility goes down the tubes tomorrow, they may be a billion or today they may be a billion dollar company tomorrow. They can be just as obsolete as MySpace. And there's something you also brought up that kind of, you know, also near and dear to my heart is the uh, Airbnb short-term rental fights. And one of the cities that stand out for California. So a lot of these awesome tech companies, I mean, you look at Uber, Lyft, uh, Airbnb, a lot of them centered around California started there. There's huge consumer base there, but cities like Santa Monica made it a criminal act. There is actually someone who I think he was, uh, he was facing at least 10 charges. They might've been misdemeanor. I'd have to look back at the article, for renting it out, and they actually had undercover officers. They treated him like he was some sort of hardened criminal. He had to engage in a plea deal, and even after all the fines and everything else, people are like, well, he's only fined a few thousand dollars. I'm like, no, what you really did is took away his livelihood because that was that's how he was paying the bills. That's how he's put food on the table, and he wasn't doing anything reckless. And actually, there's a lot of studies I've done that the short-term rental the whole that part of the gig economy has actually improved entire neighborhoods. There are areas where people would have not invested in the past, but there are people that want to invest in some questionable areas, turn all these houses that were maybe abandoned or in poor shape into excellent shape. And they have a huge incentive to keep them that way because if you have a house that's even slightly dirty or reckless or known as a party house, you get booted from a lot of these apps. You There's consequences to that. Uh, and, I mean, we're seeing this in a lot of fights across the country. And this goes back to a lot of threats we face. I mean, when Uber and Lyft started up uh, early on, there's a lot of states that may be identified as more conservative that were very hostile to a lot of these gig economies. And they had they kept putting up more barriers. Um, and this is an ongoing fight that we see in Nevada. I mean, you see a debate where there's one side that's trying to legalize short-term rentals in the entire state. There's another side of the aisle that wants to give local governments more control so that they can take people's homes, even during a pandemic, if they don't comply with certain rules. And the tragedy is we're probably you and me, we can go all day on policy. We're kind of weird people that way. Most people are not. Most people just want to put food on the table and be left alone. So when they're engaging Airbnb, they've probably used this app all over the country. I've used it all over the country from you know Tennessee, Virginia, California, all, and most people don't realize that there's a whole f legal fight over this. And then some people may be like, hey, I'll make some money. I lost my job during a pandemic. I can create an opportunity to make a safe environment. It's a good alternative than maybe being in a hotel with thousands of people where they all maybe touch the same door handle. And now people are finding out the hard way, like, why am I facing $1,000 a day? And why is there now a city councilman I've never even heard of before talking about taking my home if, because I maybe had an app that I thought was legal a while ago? 
it's just kind of a terrifying idea, and that's why we need to bring more people into this discussion. Because there's a lot of people that maybe favor barriers until they realize that the very things they use, whether they're a consumer or provide a service, that they're putting themselves not only out of work or getting rid of these services, but putting themselves in a position where they're going to be on the wrong side of a legal debate with the government. And that's generally not a position you want to be in. I remember when Uber was trying to come into St. Louis. This is a few years ago. And I was watching this fight in St. Louis, and it was mainly between Uber and the St. Louis Taxi Cab Commission. And the St. Louis Taxi Cab Commission wanted all kinds of different barriers for Uber to be in there. And a lot of these barriers were for one purpose, and that was to protect the taxi cabs in St. Louis. It was a very uh, cronious operation that was being operated there. And to go back to a point you said earlier, Uber finally just said, fine, we're turning on the app. We're going to operate in St. Louis. And if you don't like it, come and arrest us. And they turned on the app. That weekend, I think 3,000 rides were given out in St. Louis, not one ticket issued. Because I remember at that time, uh, Mayor Slay said, I'm sorry, but the police in St. Louis have better things to do than hunt down Uber drivers. And I, I love that story because it just shows, you know, guts to say, come and get us. And, and the willingness of, of people in St. Louis to say, you know, basically live free or, or die. But this idea that this is a, also to, to get past the benefit of the doubt, there is a lot of cronyism in this operation, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I mean, we could see it well beyond the whole gig economy. I mean, you could see it when it comes to occupational licenses, the fights between Uber, Lyft. Uh, out here, it's actually now Uber, Lyft, and Via versus DC Metro. Because DC Metro, before, they're like, no one's going to compete with this. And a lot of the tech companies are like, okay, well, we've beaten the taxi cabs. Why don't we start at fixed transit? And DC Metro had a very clear response. They said they didn't see as competition. They, they took it one step further. They said these tech companies are stealing from us. We have to recoup costs by upping taxes in DC, Maryland, and Virginia, and then increasing the tax rate on rideshare service. I think it was like one to 6%. Uh, Cause they're like, Hey, if we can't compete with them, tax them. Was there mindset. But you're also seeing a lot of this where maybe some areas have allowed some companies to kind of enter into this technology that they consider new that's really not that new. But maybe they're only given certain exemptions or maybe they're issuing only a certain amount of workers in this industry and kind of really killing the whole purpose of the gig economy. It's the free flow of engaging in mutual benefit. It's the idea of just being able to do what you want. And there are people out there that whether they're corporate interests, whether they just don't want competition, there are people that just have a fear. They're like, well, what if you give people too much freedom and competition? What if you have too many things to pick from at the store? I mean, we've seen senators and Congress say this. I mean, it's it, it's kind of a scary concept. I mean, it goes back to when I talked to people in the public, freedom is a radical concept. What we're saying is you can do what you want. I mean, it was radical to talk about 200 years ago. It's just as radical now, in my opinion, to talk about this. How much of this do you think is going to impact you personally? If, say, the PRO Act passes, how is this going to impact you personally? There's a few things I can think of. So right off the bat, I could see definitely a huge, uh, a good percentage of my income taking a pretty big hit. And someone might come back and say, it's like, well, you know what? That's a, only a small percentage of your income. It's fine. 
I'm like, not really. Not only is it, do I lose that income, but I lose that safety net, that freedom, that ability to move around. But the secondary cost I'm going to see is the ability to engage as a consumer in this industry. Whether if I want to travel, I may have heavy restrictions on what I can do, how I can just get out of the airport when I travel for work or fun. Am I going to be able to use an independent contractor? How is that going to, let's say someone's like, well, it won't disappear. I'm like, well, let's say it doesn't disappear. Because uh, that's not the case. California, they talked about if uh, the voter approved amendment, this Prop 22, didn't pass, Uber and Lyft was going to lay everyone off in the state, one of the biggest uh, places for customers. Um, but let's say if it does exist, the cost would go up to the point where could I actually use that? Does that become now, once again, a luxury service for wealthy people? Where the great thing about the free market, it's not about just having really expensive objects and services for wealthy people. It's about being able to have all those services available to the common person, to the person, whether you're rich, poor, middle class, you have all these opportunities. And what we thought was an awesome service or, you know, radical idea of 10 years ago is normal day-to-day practice. And I think we just lose out on so much more. And like you've brought up before, I, you know, not everyone could be see the future and plan everything out. There may be something that 10 years from now may completely change the way how I make money or even just as a consumer, how I travel around the US. Uh, and I think we'd lose out on that if there's a top-down federal government approach using pretty harsh, you know, using bureaucrats, using harsh force to tell us what we can do, what we can't do, what services we can use and what we can't use. What else is there that you wanted to say about this that I haven't asked about yet? Is it, was there anything coming into this you adamantly wanted to talk about that we haven't discussed yet? Uh, I mean, I think the, the kind of the theme I really just want to drive here is that when we're talking about the PRO Act, if it is successful, we're not just talking about, you know, a few independent contractors. We're talking about millions of independent contractors, and that trend is growing because young people want to have more flexibility. It goes back to the four-hour work week. When I read that book when I was in college, I, no, it was actually a college kind of interning, was a radical idea. People were like, that's a crazy idea. That'll never happen. Now that's something that we've seen as a normal thing the last few years, especially during the pandemic that's considered now starting to become standard practice. Uh, so you have millions of people that you're going to take out of a job. There's millions of services that people depend on. I mean, you're seeing a lot of nonprofits partnering up with a lot of independent contractors when it comes to healthcare services, transportation, everything else you need. So you're not really help. There's no benefit to this. We talk about trade-offs. The trade-offs are going to be devastating for little gain. And we should consider that really with any policy, but something like the PRO Act, we should definitely have more people speak out on it. People on all sides of the aisle should understand the consequences. Thanks again to Tom Bingham for taking the time to talk to us today. If you have any questions about this podcast, please send them to I, the number two, A, at AFPHQ.org. I look forward to hearing from you. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.